Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and with me in studio today, as he always is, is President Wyatt. Good morning, Scott. Well, thank you very much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here today, as it always is with you, and we have uh, an exceptionally interesting guest and an exceptionally interesting topic of conversation. This is actually our last book of our summer book list, um, The Ghost Map by Stephen Johnson. And uh, we had our guest in for a little teaser at the beginning of the month, but uh, now we're going to get to go further into it with him. Will you go ahead and introduce him? So, Dr. Blodgett, welcome this morning. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're so glad to have you here. Um, your business is public health. That's correct. That's correct. Preventative medicine and a, and a myriad of other things, but it's <laughs> public health. Right. So the science that developed probably starting in large measure with the events that are described in this book now, uh, every almost every county probably in, in America has a, a health officer and a, a local health department designed to prevent disease, keep people healthy instead of waiting for them to get sick. So you, uh, in many ways, owe your career to the story that's told in this book. Yeah, absolutely. It was, sure, it was certainly the genesis of the concepts that uh, are put into place every day in the, in the modern practice of public health. They all started, at least at least got a big jump up with the activities uh, that John Snow was engaged in in the ghost map, right? Yeah, so that's, that's one of the reasons why this book is so relevant. It's, it's a great story, but it's so relevant to us because... We all have a better life because of the story told in this book. Absolutely. We were just, just yesterday at our health department, we were discussing, we're engaged in a project to build a well <laughs> in Malawi. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and the, the tagline is always the difference between a first world country and a third world country is public health. The things that you put in place and the structural things that are available to people in order to help them not get sick just by being in the environment they're in. So you take somebody in Malawi, the rate of children getting diarrhea is in the 25 to 30% range uh, before they're two years of age. And so the average age at death is, is in the 40s because so many children die. That's, that's what this science brings uh, into the modern world is we don't, we don't hear about that now, right? It's not even the top 10 causes of death, diarrhea in children, but in a place where you don't have a clean water supply, that's, that's what you face. Yeah, and that gets me thinking of hospitals that I've visited in third world countries. But that's another topic. I don't yes. want to get us too far I distracted. Apologize. No, no, I, you, you just reminded me. And, and when we travel, um, 
we don't really see all of this. We, we visit other countries and, and we don't see what the hospitals look like and we don't really get a sense of the fact that they don't have public health. When I'm, when I'm uh, in some countries, I, it, it, it does now because of what I've been learning, but now I do think I'm so happy that we have food handlers permits and training yeah. and somebody watching out for us. And, and, it's, and, and that is only touching the tip. It's, it's largely a thankless job as part of the problem. I just read an article entitled uh, in, in Praise of, of Maintenance, you know, and how in our society nobody wants to thank the guy that keeps it where it's at. But that, that really is, we should, you know, that's that's yeah. something, If when you look around, it's the maintainers of the world that help keep the society the way it is. So. Well, and some of a lot of this is discussion about stuff that, at least in previous years, was not really part of polite company. I mean, we're talking about waste disposal and management and, and, and there's a, I think there's a sentence in the book where, where he talks about, uh, London and what at the time, all the modern miracles that it was, um, that it was beginning to see, but that the biggest miracle of all was they finally built this sewer system that was underground and not seen, but it saved countless lives and made the world in London certainly a much better place. And so, probably around the world, because that became a model for everybody else that said, wow, you know, we, need, we all need to do this. Yep. Well, let's start this discussion out there. Um, because the book is a story of the cholera outbreak in London in 1854. And so let's start out with London in 1854. And what really grabbed me in reading this story was thinking about um, the comparison, when I travel to large cities today, what I find and what kind of repulses me a little bit in a lot of garbage that might be laying on the side of the street or things that are um, dilapidated, and, and I think, well, that's, we, we should keep these cities prettier. But, but in fact, they're beautiful compared to what cities were like 150 years ago. We're, we, we have no um, concept of how clean even our most unclean cities are yeah absolutely and, and i think the book does a wonderful job of highlighting just what that must have been like i i, I the description of the average home they have a, a cesspool in their basement that a, cesp- a cesspool in the basement in, in, yeah in the home um <laughs> Things like they they'd take a, how, a cow into the home and hoist it up and feed it until it died, and <laughs> they'd have to try and figure out how to get it back out, you know. But the cesspool fills up, and it overflows, and so coming out of the basement, you have raw sewage often flowing over most of their yard, and then sometimes they'd put stepping stones so they could make it through the sewage without, you know, actually walking through the sewage, but... <laughs> I don't think that's a scene that would fly very well in modern America. No, but it was it was normal life. Yeah. It was normal life um, for them, and I, the the whole industry that built up in London and other cities like London with um, the dredgermen and the night soilmen, the pure finders, the rag gatherers. You know we. Um, wasn't it in Oliver that we've got these people wandering around at night picking pockets of dead <coughs> people on the streets? 
Yes, absolutely. This, and, and this it, is positively the Dickens yeah. description of London. Dickens, I mean, every, Dickens was alive at this yeah. time, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and when it comes right down to it, all of those, all of those people were providing a very valuable service. Um, and they were among the first recyclers in civilization. <laughs> An important role. And, and so the job you want in that one is the appraiser, right? They have expert appraisers of the trash to tell you what it's worth. I, I'm not sure how you get that job. but uh. <laughs> As they have the argument about miasma versus waterborne illness, it, the author here, Mr. Johnson, keeps coming back to the idea that that these people who were up to their knees in filth every day would have been dying at a much higher rate had miasma actually been the the cause of this because surely they worked in the foulest smelling uh, worst place in the city and yet they didn't they weren't dying at a higher rate than anyone else um, and we had over a hundred thousand people in London in the 1850s who made their living um, taking clothes off of dead people collecting human waste dog waste, bones, recycling this, selling it, cleaning um, cesspools. That's, that's really interesting to think of uh, more than 100,000 people who are making their livings off of scavenging in the cities. <laughs> and, and, and the night soilmen who are cleaning the cesspools are getting getting paid, uh, I think, a shilling, a shilling a cesspool, which is considerably higher wages than the average skilled worker. And that becomes part of the problem, doesn't it? That the cost to clean out a cesspool is so expensive that, that people just let it go. Yeah, let it stay. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if this is an appropriate point at the moment, but I was, I was fascinated with the discussion of, but this was the beginnings of fertilizer, though. So they took all that waste, right. they, they took it out to the country and, and put it on, on farmland and, and started figuring out, hey, that's a way to make the farmland much more productive. And so even in these worst of circumstances, you start to see the thought process that leads to improvement, you know. So yeah. necessity, but, I guess, the mother of invention. The night soilmen uh, had this figured out, didn't they? Yeah. They got paid pretty good to clean a cesspool, and then they found a farmer that would buy the product of the cesspool, if I can use that <laughs> description, <laughs> for fertilizer. That's right. But even that spread the disease, too, right? Spread the so. disease. So the context here, if you want to have that, is from the 51 or 52 when this outbreak of cholera started, roughly 30,000 people died of cholera in London. Um, that, that in contrast, there's 700 that died directly as a result of the, the Broad Street pump. But this is, in the bigger context, this is a catastrophe, you know, 30,000 people, that's... You have to go pretty far up in the list of leading causes of death today to find something that kills 30,000 people. So, Well, and we're in the 1850s, and until about 1831, there was no cholera in England. Right. Uh, cholera came on the ships as um, 
part of the industrial age and being able to transport goods and from one country to another, and so cholera came. Um, so it's interesting how this um, advancements that we made brought problems, and um, and people became more and more uh, densely populated, which spread the problems. But now we have to figure out how to solve it. Absolutely. So each each wave of of progress brings with it its own issues <laughs> that have to be solved. Right. Yeah. So. Now we worry about an airplane, somebody getting on an airplane and taking a disease that would have taken a millennia to move, you know, 20 years ago now goes around the world in, in weeks, days. So the capacity to travel has uh, magnified itself in the modern age. Making this business of public health dramatically more important. Yeah. And putting a surveillance system, we call it surveillance means to watch over in place uh, is, is part of of the piece that uh, is necessary to make sure that we have something ready to go when, when a new disease hits and they do. Yeah. Diseases that we're not prepared for because they're not in our communities, but they all of a sudden appear from travel. Well, you don't have an immune memory to it to help you fight it off. You don't have the medical infrastructure, immunizations, medications, things like that in place. So this, um, this, this part of the story that I think is so interesting is some of the detail that came out as a result of the investigation of these, these people that were trying so desperately to find the cause of cholera. And the story of Thomas and Sarah Lewis um, moving into this house on Broad Street. And uh, the... The details are pretty accurate right down to the day, the time, the person. We don't know the name of the baby, but what we know is is that this little child is sick, diarrhea, and Sarah Lewis is trying to take care of her child. Her husband's a police officer in London. And, um, And on a particular day, she is cleaning up the mess that her daughter had left, washes it out in a bowl, and then takes that and throws it into the cesspool. And that event is what started this whole thing. But of course, the baby got it from somewhere. But it was throwing it into this cesspool that then leaks into, we later discover, the Broad Street well that caused all these deaths and the spread of this illness. I think that's just really so interesting that they know who it was and where it was. Yeah, and I the description of the Broad Street Pump I found fascinating as well. It was known to be cleaner, cooler, purer water than the other wells. <laughs> so, so people would come from all over to get the water there because it had this reputation for being some of the best water around. So. But everybody's cesspools is leaking into it, <laughs> and, right. and nobody <laughs> is concerned about that. <laughs> well, when you don't know what when bacteria you, are, I guess you don't have to worry yeah. about things like that. So. If it's too small for this court <laughs> That's right. to see. That was in the <laughs> teaser, right? So. That's right. You have to go back and listen to the other one to get that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's um, – why don't we – go on with this investigation work, which leads us um, in a few minutes uh, to the title of the book, The Ghost Map. Why don't you walk us through that? Well, so as people started to fall ill, 
people it was they started to recognize actually if you it's interesting the book is actually once you hit chapter three each chapter is a day in the outbreak and so you realize how compressed time becomes when people start to die so rapidly so it takes you one to two days to die from cholera generally not a very pleasant way to die generally removing all of the fluids from your body not a very pleasant experience <laughs> most of the time people would end up uh, you know uh, i'm sorry go ahead <clears throat> no i i i didn't want to interrupt your flow but i did because i the, the <laughs> part of this story when you said um what, your, your just description that back in those days if you got a stomach ache yeah you know there's a very real possibility you will be dead in a couple of days we don't have that fear today. Yeah, we don't even recognize that that was a problem. I've got a stomach ache. Oh well, I'll, I'll just work through it. <laughs> anyway, sorry it's, about the no. sorry about the interruption. I just think that's the world that we have never known. I have a stomach ache. I might be dead in two days. It, it's so foreign to the way we think now. We think, well, we'll go to the doctor and it'll get fixed. And so when it doesn't work out, that's the exception, not the. Wow, it wasn't just a stomach ache. It, yeah. it was that thirty percent uh, fatal <laughs> stomach ache, whatever yeah. it was. Um, so, so you know, ironically enough, or not ironically enough, I don't know, because people didn't really, you know, this is the birth of of many kind of uh, Renaissance moments, right? Lots of learning going on, lots of changing going on, and you could have people that could be kind of cross-disciplinary and, and, and kind of really geniuses in multiple areas. That's kind of the, the hallmark of the area, era, and it's really pretty remarkable. And so this Jon Snow, he's, he is that guy. He, you know, he developed anesthesia almost single-handedly, had three or four other areas where he really excelled. But he was interested in cholera largely because as he'd studied the cholera outbreaks and the epidemics, he he came to believe that the miasma theory, which is kind of the the antagonist in this story, if you want to call it that, wasn't wasn't reality. And he wanted to prove that it wasn't in order to better, you know, public health and things like that. So so as he enters into the scene, you know, he's interested because he notices that these these people are getting sick rapidly and they're in a fairly focused area in the city and that it would be much more uh, studyable than these general uh, kinds of outbreaks of color where they had been broad-based throughout the whole city. And so the fact that he began to notice that, that, that people were concentrated in a small area really led him to believe that this might be a chance for him to, uh, to really study color and how it was spread. Um, so, so in modern days, we know that uh, rehydrating is the way to treat cholera. In those days, they thought stopping fluids was the way to treat cholera. So they made the problem much worse by, well, once you were sick, they said, okay, no more water, uh, when, ex when it was exactly the opposite that was necessary. You start tanking up. And, and so um, it, it's kind of a testament to the helter-skelter nature of medicine at the time that, that 20 years before, somebody had figured out that, hey, if you, if you inject somebody with a little bit of salt water, they do much better. But in, in all of the publishing that was going on about cholera, it got lost for another 40 years before somebody figured out, hey, IV fluids might have a role here. So, Yeah. So he, he puts himself at great risk, Jon Snow. 
the prevailing opinion is of all of medicine and science is that cholera is spread through miasma, poison air. And he, he thinks there might be another cause. And so he goes into poison air. <laughs> Absolutely. Directly confronting the issue. If he's right, he's going to save the world. If he's wrong, he's going to die. <laughs> and, and sometimes they do, these researchers. They're a little bit crazy. So. Yeah. <laughs> For example, the guy that wanted to prove that yellow fever was spread by mosquitoes allowed himself to be bit by infected mosquitoes and died. So uh, it takes a certain amount of uh, extra <laughs> devotion to the cause to prove some of these things, I guess. It, it's interesting that the other protagonist in this adventure, Henry Whitehead, was also there for different reasons. He was in the clergy and was out seeing people and interested in helping them. And he, at one point, drinks the water. Mm. Uh, but the difference was he put a, a, a little shot of alcohol, I can't remember if it was brandy or something, in the water, which sterilized the water, right? And so... He had a hard time coming around to the idea that it was the water because he was drinking the water at the time this was going on. So you have these two. One whitehead starts off being a, a miasma theorist who eventually, because of the events and Jon Snow, swings over. It's kind of the, the story. His story becomes the story of the science as you progress through the book. It's kind of interesting that way. <clears throat> yeah, and part of this investigation work um, led them to... Um, People like uh, that were working at a brewery. Yes. And um, they weren't getting sick. And and other, anyway, it's a, it's so interesting, all the leads that they pursued and the confusion at times and finally come to some conclusions. Anyway, I interrupted your flow of this story. Well, so one, one part of this story that I think is remarkable is that Jon Snow realized that the secret to making this work was detailed records and and good and compiling in a in a scientific manner all of the data that was available to him. So, as he and Henry White had started to to write down the stories and to quantify uh, what was going on, that's what led to the map number one. But it also led to a good understanding of of what was going on and who was doing what. And, and oftentimes in an investigation like this, it's the outliers that become your most telling indicator, right? So, so you you find a couple of of people that are a long ways away from the pump that die, but when you do the work to talk to them, and they he's, they say, well, you know what? I had them bring the water to me because it's this great water, and I drank the water too. That's when you start to say, yeah, I think we've got the right thing. So, so. So he, he does this incredibly detailed work of figuring out where all the deaths are and then plotting them on the map, which gives you a visual representation of it, along with the work of, of, of identifying all of the risk factors that these people were involved in and then being able to narrow it down to, yeah, they all had contact with the water. So. Yeah, the ghost map. The ghost map. That's the ghost map. This, uh, this map of... and it. And it took um, it took Whitehead's research, didn't it? Yeah, between because the two. he was in every home, he knew who was sick. They were able to write this down, create a map. Um, 
normally you would just kind of, under the theories of the day of miasma, you would just say, well, where is everybody congregated that's getting sick? But they said that's not the point. The point is, is where did everybody get their water that's getting sick? And so you get this map that's got all these tentacles that reach all over. And, and once you've got the ghost map put together, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and there was a second map, too, which I think was also instructive in the process. And the second map was where the two competing water companies fed their water into the city. And so you could show, so the, the question was, well, how come, if it's miasma, how come the people that are in the brewery aren't getting sick or the other people that are living there? And yet you could show that the, the homes that were serviced by one of those water companies had a much different cholera rate than the other one. And, uh, and so those kinds of maps help dispel the fact this isn't, this isn't, smell this is this is related to something exterior that's related to the water in fact it was the the fact that the water was being delivered by different companies that that helped separate that out isn't that right i mean he gave him a cleaner study um and that and the the combination of uh, as you suggested earlier that the broad street pump was renowned for its clean cool water and so people would come so he was able to that that map extended to places where it yeah. where miasma wouldn't have really factored into it because people would send their grandchildren or whatever long distances just to get the water from that pump. Yeah, some wealthy people out in the country. <laughs> yeah, and and those cases really strengthened the hypothesis because then you say, well, it can't be miasma because this was miles away. So, but it did prove that it was in the water because they had the water and they drank the. It was pretty elegant science for 1854. <laughs> and then how long did it take that theory to be recognized, accepted? Well, that's, that's the disheartening thing is even after that, I, in London they started to do some things more related to that. They, they focused on, on getting the sewers up and running. But really the initial report that came out from Chadwick and others that were in, ahead of the sanitation department basically stacked the data in a way that uh, didn't allow the conclusion that it was water. And so, so it, was, it was still decades before finally mainstream science started to swing around and say, you know what, this, this is not about miasma. It's about, it's about waterborne pathogens. And in a, lot of, in a lot of cases, it took the microscope and being able to see the bacteria, those kinds of things that uh, brought the science around. But it, it, was, it was an evolution. It wasn't a uh, a revolution of the moment, <laughs> as most things are. In our discussion before we started, you had said this this kind of represents both the best and worst of government. Uh, yeah. So this is the first time maybe that there really is a city sanitation committee that's looking at this important and problematic uh, issue, but they come to the wrong conclusion yeah. and, and <laughs> stick to it as hard as they possibly right. can for decades and decades until finally they're their ideas turned. So, so they were out pouring gallons of bleach on the issue when, <laughs> when that wasn't the problem. Yeah, and it's, it's um, part of this uh, story that's so interesting, too, is that when they thought that miasma, poisonous air, was the cause of cholera, then the city went about cleaning up the air. And the way they cleaned up the air was they drained all the cesspools into the river. Yeah, that's right which spread it. And I and that made it worse. 
far worse. Yeah, because they were pulling their drinking water out of the Thames River, which was now being had all the sewer in its sewage. <clears throat> the book talks about other examples of this where our assumptions lead us to very bad places like spreading cholera. But the other one was this plague outbreak of 1665-66 that is described in this book where popular lore was that the plague was being caused by cats and dogs. So they went out and killed them all. <laughs> Yeah. Left the rats. Isn't that great? <laughs> which, which, is actually. which which gave the rats free play and they were spreading it. Yeah. There there's an equally tragic story in the plague saga where in Venice they actually thought, you know, I think this is related to the rats. So the the doge, the the main guy, said, I'll give uh, money for whoever brings in a rat tail. So all of a sudden, all these rat tails came in, and they thought, man, this is great. It's going to wipe out the rat population. They went for a walk one day, and he saw three or four tailless rats heading down this <laughs> thing. And he realized what was happening. The poor people were catching the rats, cutting off their tails so they could continue to reproduce and be, a, be an income source for them, right? Mm-hmm. So, so <laughs> and instead of having the intended effect, it gave people a, a, some food to eat, and so they were not willing to... If the rats are the gone, rats. my job is gone. <laughs> That's exactly right. So they had a, the tailless rat population instead of a dead rat population. <laughs> I, I ask myself this question all the time. Um, I think I see a problem. And I think I know the solution. And I'm going to go after the solution. And uh, sometimes I find that the solution isn't the solution is making it worse. It was worse than the than the problem. Well, and, and medicine, I think, sir, tends to highlight those issues a lot better than some other areas, you know, in our lives because the effects are so immediate. <laughs> so it allows us to to do kind of a an assessment of the situation almost in real time. But it serves as a great analogy for the rest of life because I I think that's exactly true. Sometimes our perceptions and the data we have available to us lead us to a conclusion that isn't exactly where you want. Yeah, here's a line from the book. Um, And I'll say this in a room where two of the three of us are very smart. (laughs) Hey. That wouldn't be me. (laughs) I know who that leaves out. (laughs) I'm smart enough to figure that out. I'm leaving out myself. But, But here's this interesting line. Whenever smart... Whenever smart people cling to an outlandishly incorrect idea, despite substantial evidence to the contrary, something interesting is at work. In the case of miasma, that something involves a convergence of multiple forces all coming together to prop up a theory that should have died out decades before. And uh, we just get into these assumptions, and when smart people buy them, it's so hard to get rid of them. Yeah, it, it <laughs> is. so hard. <laughs> well, it's even harder when people's livelihoods are at stake, right? Or they yeah, perceive there's... their livelihoods are at stake. So that's part of the problem here. You've got this commission now that's based itself on cleansing the streets of odors, and they can't see that there might be a role for them if, if this other theory works. So they have an additional incentive. And maybe it's not a, a, a they're not cognizant of it. It's not a conscious 
uh, decision, but subconsciously, or at least on some level, they realize, wow, if I, if I pursue this course, my job becomes much different <laughs> or non-existent. So. That's why sometimes the only real way to find a solution is to have somebody outside of the culture come in, yeah. somebody who has um, no stake in the game. But, but you're right. It's, for, I, I'm convinced as well that for the most part, we're not subconsciously trying to protect ourselves, but we're not intentionally trying to protect ourselves, but subconsciously we frequently end up doing that. Yeah. I also wonder how much of this was just the strength of our sense of smell. You know, I, as, as I was reading it and looking at the miasma apologists and, and they're, they're painted as being, as we've discussed here, you know, just kind of stubbornly clinging to an obviously false doctrine. But it, it seems like to me that if the city, as, as the description unfolds of London, if, you're, if it stunk as bad as it, it has to have stunk, <laughs> I, can, I, have some, I have some pity on the miasma people. It, it, if, my, if you walk down the street of, a, of a, a place where people were dying of diarrhea, and their homes were cesspools, essentially. I I can see where you'd think that. I mean, the the sense of our sense of smell is so immediate and so strong, and that smell particularly is so revulsive to us. You can you can see where people would jump to the conclusion of, well, for heaven's sakes, that yeah. the, the the air is sick in here. Well, you, you got to remember this theory that goes along with all of. Galen and Hippocrates, all of the ancient physicians, things that have been there all the way through the Middle Ages. So the humors, you know, where you'd bleed people and all of those kinds of things, they were all still widely current in, yeah. in medical practice. And, and trying to break free of those after four, five, six, seven hundred years of, of currency in, in, in medical practice was, is very difficult, was and is, still can be. So There's... Um... There's, a, there's so many little pieces uh, in this story that when we read it today, we, we just think, well, why couldn't they see that? And I'm sure that someday someone will ask us the same questions. But well, about what we just, why can't we see something? Are there, are there current things today, Doctor, that, that are, I mean, is the, is the anti-vaccination crowd yeah. uh, an, an example of this or, or oh, there's, not trying to pick a fight with anybody no, but that, are, <laughs> we, that's that's a, a a movement that had some traction within the last four or five years maybe yeah you know i, I think that's a pretty good example of it you know part, part of the problem with the anti-vaccine movement is most of the people now haven't seen what diphtheria looks like or something like that so so it's easy to believe that a disease isn't a threat when you haven't seen it, right? And so uh, I, I think that's part of the problem we've faced with them. But, but, it isn't, but it is also true that almost universally you can, you can find ways, once, once science has taken care of an issue, to say, well, that never happened before, right? It, it just wasn't true, reality. So I tell you that it's easiest to get people vaccinated that come from a place where these diseases are widely spread still and hardest in places where they're most insulated from it. So if you have to pick an epicenter for the anti-vaccine movement, it's Malibu, <laughs> Hollywood, California, because, you know, they're so insulated from this stuff and they just don't 
they don't see what these diseases are like and what it does to kids and things like that. And, and I tell you the, the, the fastest conversion you'll see from anti-vaccine to vaccine is when, when a kid from one of these families gets sick and they realize, wow, you know, I'm not just playing with something here. Had a mother call me the other day, said, uh, I, this is my kid's really sick. <laughs> He's been coughing for three months, and uh, you know he's, he's, he's as sick as he's ever been. I said, yeah, that's why they call it pertussis, because they cough until they throw up, and they also call it the hundred day cough for a reason. And uh, you know it used to kill, I don't know, four, five, six thousand kids every year in the United States, and so. I, most people don't realize what they're dealing with mm. in that, in that sense. Um, but there's, um, yeah, they don't know what they're dealing with or don't know, uh, certain things that can't be seen or aren't apparent to us or obvious. One of the, one of the little stories that is told in this book as these investigators are working, and I think it's a really interesting little insight is that uh, Henry Whitehead is preaching one Sunday morning and uh, all these people have been dying and uh, one of the ideas was is that if you had a stronger constitution you were less likely to become sick and as he's preaching to his congregation and congratulating them it dawns on him that he's talking to a group of old infirm um, the least healthy segment <laughs> <laughs> of the population. <laughs> he describes it um, standing in front of his haggard parishioners in the half-empty church. And that in of itself must be quite an experience to watch people dying all around you and getting sick and being scared about it. And you show up Sunday to preach and your, your building is half full. But he noticed the disproportionate number of poor elderly women in the pews and asked himself the question, what kind of pestilence spares the old and the destitute rather than the young and strong? And that was one of those really big clues that something's going on here that that isn't so obvious to the difference than we thought. Well, so there's this element of miasma and, you know, I think, I think the fact that some diseases spread through the air led to that as well, but there's also this element of, uh, that I think was not uncommon in their thought process and probably might be more of our thought process in the modern world than we would like to admit of social Darwinism, you know, the people that got sick got sick because they deserved it. They they lived in places that you know deserved it. Uh, they aren't uh, doing the right things that they should be doing, and so that's why they got sick. And uh, that that I think was not absent from the thought process of some of those that were charged with dealing with disease and things like that. So, yeah, the uh, the regular theme of the book is that. Is that this did this did not spare the wealthy? It didn't spare um, those that were born into you know a higher life in London. It it seemed to it seemed to be uh, cut across uh, all of the socioeconomic 
statuses of the time, and that that was uh, that that bore, as you suggest, a, a, a something of a blow to the miasma theory was that people who can afford to breathe breathe purer air, um, but they were still getting sick. Yeah. Absolutely. And the people who, as I suggested earlier, the people who were actually working in it every day were not getting sick at a rate any higher than anyone else unless they were drinking water from from the infected uh, wells. So, so the, you know, one of the bad guys, if you want to call him that, was Edwin Chadwick. And he he was the guy that ran the municipal government because he was still an advocate of the, of the miasma theory. But in a lot of ways, he was a pioneer himself. He'd advanced the idea that municipal government should play a role in helping citizens survive, which was kind of in opposite to the, we'll just let it go and see how it happens kind of theory. Uh, today, we think that sounds really kind of strange, but that was widely current at the day. You know, well, let let every, let, let people survive. We're going to survive. If you don't survive, it's because you weren't supposed to survive. So, mm -hmm. um, so even, even though he got it wrong with the miasma theory, at least he was his heart was in the place where he wanted to do good. So we get to the end of this story and, and um, go through all this process of figuring out the cause of cholera, trying to sell the cause, getting uh, government permission to remove the handle of the Broad Street well pump. And I'm struck by, at the very end of the book, that we wrap this story around to its beginning. Because at the beginning, we have Thomas and Sarah Lewis moving to this spot on Broad Street. And a daughter is dying, and it's her, um, all of the mess that she's created that gets thrown into the cesspool that starts this great outbreak from the Broad Street well. But then when we get to the end of the story, after the handle has finally been removed, and Sarah husband Thomas dies and she innocently cleaks up, cleans up all of his uh, excrement and throws it right back into the exact same cesspool which had the handle not been removed would have restarted the whole story all over again it's kind of a chilling end of the book, isn't it? It is. It has, a, it has all the makings of a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> it does have all the great makings. The music at the end. And, the yeah. <laughs> and but, but for these guys that put in so much effort and risked their lives going into so-called poison-aired environments, figuring this out, battling the politics, battling conventional wisdom, and finally getting that handle removed, but for all of that, there would have been, what do you think, thousands yeah, of thousands, thousands of more. more deaths. Absolutely. And it would have continued over and over and over. Yeah, and, and, and who over. knows how much longer it would have been before the science started to take off. I mean, I, I think it probably would have developed eventually, but who knows? 30, 40, 20, 100 years later, yeah. I don't know. So Another thing that struck me was that snow doesn't really live to see the fruits of this labor. He yeah. he dies as a fairly young man, and, and in his obituary, they note that he invented, you know, ether, or that he that he pioneered anesthesia. Yeah, uh, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't he doesn't really get doesn't get credit for <laughs> credit for saving the world. He doesn't live <laughs> long enough to see to see the theory that cholera is from a bacteria uh, really take hold. 
I, they, the book mentions that, that some scientists in Italy had isolated the Vibrio cholera bacteria uh, 20 years earlier, but it was another 20 or 30 years before somebody finally identified it again and it was recognized and That's became right. part of the germ theory of disease. So. Um, and malaria, isn't the root of the word malaria poison error? Yeah, from, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, the lessons that we learned from this um, book, I, I think the first lesson to learn from this book is that we live at a great time. Uh, no matter where we live in the world, um, we're living in a better time, better place than, than in the past. And progress keeps going forward happily. Our lives are so much more full. We live to longer ages. We live at better health, longer ages. Um, despite the pollution that cars cause in big cities, it's better, it's better that than I mean, I read, I read uh, some um, accounts of what, how messy New York City was before cars. Yeah. <laughs> Truckloads of horsemen everywhere. <laughs> everywhere you go. <laughs> I mean, you can't keep it off your shoes, no matter how hard you try. Anyway, we live in a great time. And the second thing that I take from the book is um, we need to keep our eyes wide open and... Um, not allow assumptions to just stay with us forever, but to to really be willing to examine our thinking. Absolutely. I I also, from my standpoint as a practitioner in this field, I I think there's something powerful in becoming acquainted with how a science and how a, a way of thought evolved. You know, and and came became current it's still modern in its in its application that that we can using scientific principles get to the bottom of an issue and and help make life better for people if we're willing to to apply the principles correctly and if we're willing to put in the work to do it so yeah that's what i do every day and uh, it's a wonderful line of work i'm grateful to be engaged in it and i'm glad you're doing it because when i drink water and when i stop and buy food at a restaurant and when i move around town i i know that our lives are so much better because dr dave's food. looking out for us yeah. <laughs> well yeah. it's absolutely true it, yep. it's always under the radar and few people come up to you and say you know i got i didn't get sick eating in that restaurant yesterday so thank you <laughs> <laughs> well let me be the first yeah. <laughs> I, I ate in a restaurant yesterday thank you for <laughs> Thank you for being there. Yeah. Thank you for being the on the wall. Somebody's got to be there. Yep. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's the praise of the of those that maintain. I guess. Well, we all have to. Yeah, we all have to find a way to be um, self-validating and not necessarily rely on everybody else. Because if we were that way, then Snow and Whitehead would have given up a long time before they got to their s s conclusions. Too. Yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University. We've had as our guest in studio today Dr. David Blodgett, and we've been discussing The Ghost Map by Stephen Johnson. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back to our regular schedule of weekly podcasts pretty soon, I think.
as soon as school starts Monday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. School starts very quickly here. So anyway, we're looking forward to that and we appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.